Let's pray. Just to name so it's not awkward, I just would like to sit in silence for a little bit. Jesus, I love this time and I'm grateful for this, for this place, this building that was built in 1902, I believe, that we get to inherit and be stewards and caretakers of this space that we've called home and that is in a place, in a neighborhood here in the city of Milwaukee that we see you moving in, Holy Spirit. I'm grateful to spend time with friends and fam- friends who have become family and be the church together. I'm grateful for how you call us to yourself and you don't leave us on our own. I'm grateful that we have the scriptures that we can open together and learn and grow in understanding and be transformed by and wrestle with and even disagree about. I'm just grateful for the life that you, you stir and that you cultivate and that you call us together and you call us to yourself. So would you just do more of that? Continually, would you do more of that? Call us to yourself and call us together. Help us to more and more understand what it means to be your bride, to be your church, to be the body of Christ, embodying Jesus in a world that needs him so much. Embodying you, Jesus, to one another in ways that we weren't expecting. So Holy Spirit, come and, come and teach us, come and lead us, come and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. I got this Bible, I don't remember how long ago. We were a church, so within the last 10 years. It's pretty beat up, but I love it. I love this Bible, and I love just the scriptures, the scripture, the Bible itself. I love the Bible. It's so crazy to me that I've built a career mostly all about talking about this thing right here and what's inside, this library of ancient books, this library of books that was written a couple thousand years ago, at the most recent, (laughs) compiled by a, a bunch of different people who lived in different places and different times, different cultures even. And we get the privilege of just digging through it and trying to see these cohesive themes that come about in it, wrestling with the, the beauty of the inspiration and the divinity, divinity of it and also the humanity and the, the human fingerprints that are all over it. 
And what I've learned from studying and reading and falling in love with and struggling with and all of that stuff with this library of books is that this is a very, very complex I'll just call it a book, even though it's not a book, it's a library. It's a very, the Bible is a very complex thing. I mean, we have several thousand denominations around the world right now who say they center themselves around this book, who believe all sorts of different things. They're very nuanced. And we call ourselves the family of God. And we study the same verses, and sometimes we come away with same things, and sometimes we come away with different things. Some of us in this family, worldwide global family, some of us think that if you don't believe in my interpretation or our interpretation, our tribe's interpretation, you're not part of the true church, and I mean that with scare quotes. But see, that's, that's not our tribe, just so you know. We like to take a more generous approach. But it's what keeps me coming back is the complexity of this library of 66 books, this, the, the, the nuance, the, the tension in it. The fact that I can be 44 years old and I've been a Christian my whole life and I'm still learning things, and I ex- anticipate learning more and more things exponentially as I go because I've found that's what's been happening in my life. I don't know about you. If you come to a place where you, f- where you felt like for a while, I've got it. I've got it all figured out. Me and the Bible are, we're good with each other. We, we know each other really well. I want to challenge you that there's more to it for you. I want to encourage you that I believe our goal as Christians is to be lifelong learners, and that is to center ourselves around the Scriptures and following the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an active, even bigger part of it. But we get to sit with these complexities. Today, we're gonna, we've got a text. Ian kind of scared you, I think. If you were here in the beginning, he said, we're going to look at a text that might be a little scarier, challenging. And that might be true. We're going to talk about and be honest about, I'm going to be honest about some things that I believe, but it's right from the text. And right within our text, I'm going to find something that I agree with and something that I don't really agree with. We're going to find something that seems to be in tension within our text this morning, and we get to do what good Christians have gotten to do for 2,000 years, and that is sit in the tension. Ask the Holy Spirit what is true, what is real, what is right, what is most consistent with your character and nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we've got an exciting half hour ahead of us or so, and then we get an even more exciting days ahead of talking and learning and submitting ourselves to the Scriptures, to the Holy Spirit, to one another, and honoring each other enough to listen some more to each other. So I'm going to, I don't have 
Ian's the best at illustrations and bringing his girls into all of the sermons and everything. I don't have that for you this morning. I don't have a fancy metaphor or a story to tell you. I just want to open the scriptures this morning and, and get right into it. Is that okay? Because this morning we're going to find themes. We're going to find some themes, friend. We're going to find themes of the self-denial nature of discipleship. There's one. <laughs> Buckle up. Second is judgment. Everybody excited you came this morning? Judgment. We're going we're gonna to see some different takes on judgment, I think, that are very biblical. And then we're going to find some takes, things about who's in and who's out. And I mean on a, an internal kind of way. Nothing interesting to find here this morning in our text, right? All right, let's go to John 12. It's going to be up on the screens. I'm old school, and this doesn't mean I'm a better Christian than you, but I just like reading from my Bible. All right, so last week we were in John 12, and we took the first half of John 12. We saw Jesus anointed by Mary and Bethany. This was six days before Passover. This is, this is go time for Jesus now. He's, we're, we've come into the Passion. This is a transitional chapter. And many scholars believe that the second half of John 12 now is kind of a review of all the major themes in the, book of, in the Gospel of John as we head into next week the, the active Passion story, right? So we're going to find themes that we've hit on before. You're going to hear John 3 in here. You're going to hear John 5 in here. You're going to hear bits and pieces of the whole story because John's kind of reviewing for us where we've been as we start walking towards the cross. So in verse 20 of John 12, it says this, Now there were some Greeks among the, those who went to worship at the festival. Remember, it's Passover, the biggest Jewish festival of the year. These Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Gal Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Now, that's interesting. We just get this really personal little bit. It seems like these Greek people, these, they would be called God-fearers in this time. They were Greek people or Gentiles who were interested in Judaism. It's so much so that they, they, they migrated to, they, they pilgrimaged to Jerusalem for Passover. And apparently, they know Philip. Philip's... Philip's friends with these Greek folks, they come up to Philip, he's a friendly person, they say, hey, we'd love some time with Jesus. Philip's like, well, let me, go, let me check it out. So he goes to Andrew, they go to Jesus. Jesus replied cryptically like he often does, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, when we hear glorified, we think, Jesus coming down from heaven or rising up from the earth and glory shining all around him like the angel story in Luke 1, right? Or Luke 2. Glorified, yes, Jesus. Finally, I've been waiting. <laughs> all this time, you, I mean, people wanted to crown you as king and you slipped through the, the cracks because you didn't want to be king, but I get it now. You didn't want to be king then, but you do now, right? God's, uh, Jesus' idea of being glorified is a little bit different than ours. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, all good biologists know that that's, a seed doesn't actually die. It just germinates and grows. But this is a metaphorical picture in the way that they understood things in the ancient world 2,000 years ago. Make sense? Anyone, here's, here's the kicker, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? 
Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, Jesus, when he talks, here's the spoiler alert. When Jesus talks about now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's talking about the cross. The most shameful, painful way of, method of execution that the Roman Empire at this moment could think of. That's what Jesus means when he says, I'm going to be glorified. It means I'm going to be tortured and humiliated and ashamed and beaten and, 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 and murdered in front of the whole city. And Jesus in here, this is, many people think this is John's take on, we don't have a Gethsemane story in here. In the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus gets arrested, he goes, he prays, he sweats blood, he's in anguish. I don't want to do this, Father, and, but not my will, but yours be done. We're all familiar, most of us are familiar with that story. Scholars believe this is kind of John's kind of telling us, without inserting that story of the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was a person, and this was an intense time, moment that he was entering into. It's kind of John's Gethsemane. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there had heard it and thought and said it had thundered. All others said an angel had spoken to him. Can you imagine? Jesus is emotional and he's talking about how if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. And if you lose your life, you're going to save it. And, and now it's time for me to go to the cross. And I, I'm in anguish now. But Father, it's for this moment that I've come. Glorify your name. And boom, a voice from heaven out of nowhere starts speaking. This is intense stuff. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time of judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven up, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard, so just so you know, when he says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, he's talking about the cross. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are, go you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When Jesus had finished speaking, he left and hid himself from them. Something Jesus did. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of the Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe him because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I will heal them. Isaiah saw this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. So, this was a common quote in the early church from the book of Isaiah. This is something that was common around the early church. And this was the early church's way of trying to process the reality that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, comes to the Jewish people and most, many of the Jewish people reject him. It's this, this puzzling reality in the early church of why have so many of our people rejected the Messiah? And so they would process this by looking back on these prophetic texts, particularly from Isaiah, and say, oh, God told us the whole time. This is 
John is speaking in the late first century, and they're figuring out who this Jesus was, and what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? That word didn't even exist at this point. And what does it mean to, that, that now our religion has transformed in, from, from, one, from Judaism to this now Christ-centered religion? This is a very dynamic time in church history, right as things were beginning, and they're processing things, and, and looking at scriptures, and looking at the Old Testament in reverse, and now seeing everything in light of Jesus. Do you see the dynamics going on here? Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, because see, to be put out of the synagogue means that you have no means of income. You're not part of that covenant community anymore. If you're put out of the synagogue, that means you're excommunicated. That means your livelihood is in danger now. That means your family might, might abandon you. If you remember when we talked about the, the blind beggar who Jesus healed, his family, the Pharisees were putting out of the synagogue anyone who followed Jesus. And so they didn't even have their sons back. Do you remember that? Because this is serious business. Some leaders, it says, even believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't publicly do it because they were scared of the religious people. I mean, do you get the irony here that's, in, that's loaded in this text? Why do, why do we think it would be any different from us? I want to ask that question real quick. See, Jesus, our Messiah, came to planet Earth, and he came to the religious people that were his own, and his own rejected him. The religious people rejected him. I want to submit to you that if you're really following Jesus, you're going to find some rejection from religious people. If you're really following Jesus and taking the gospel seriously, you're going to, to, to bump up against hard conversations around, around religious people, around the people that you think are your people. Some of us in real time are going through this. And if you haven't, you will if you take Jesus seriously. It's one thing to be religious. It's one thing to be even a Christian. It's another thing to follow Jesus. Those two should go together, but oftentimes they don't. If you have any issues with stuff I'm saying, I would love to talk to you afterwards, all right? Yet at the same time, verse 42, at the same time, even among the leaders, there were many who believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but the one who sent me. He's talking about the unity between Jesus and the Father. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, even though he said it's for judgment that I have come to the world. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for, for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his commands lead to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So, we have three things we're going to be thinking about with the rest of our time. Self-denial, judgment, and who's in and who's out. 
The first is this idea of when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to lose your life. Now, this is not fun stuff. This is not fun stuff that preachers usually gravitate towards. This is not fun stuff that us Christians usually are like, yeah, this is great. This is difficult stuff. Jesus, but this is a common theme in the Gospels. You cannot read the Gospels without coming away saying, Jesus is challenging the way I live. You can't do it. At every turn, Jesus is challenging the way we live. And here he just puts it explicitly. If you want to find life, you're going to have to be willing to lose it. In order to live, you've got to be willing to die. Now, that's more of this metaphorical language that Jesus lives in and that Jesus brings because he's trying to bring stuff that's really hard for us to understand. And this is the best way for him, the best way he knows how to communicate it. See, if you want to save your life, you're going to have to be, be willing to lose it. And see, the, what we've taken this as, the, the words, the term is self-denial. Self-denial. It's kind of what I talked about last week. It's kind of similar to that where what feels most normal and natural and instinctive to us is living in ways that nobody would love to openly talk about, right? What feels most normal and natural for me is living in constant judgment of the people around me. That's easy. Am I right? What's really easy is for me to live to, to give in to bitterness and then to live in it and let it harden inside of me. I know what that feels like. Do you? What's really easy is for me to live in this jaded way, in this selfish way, kind of just cons- being consumed by how I can make myself great and how I can make the most money and how I can, can be focused on my family. All of this business, all of this self-centered stuff, that's easy. But Jesus is trying to tell us over and over again in the Gospels, including our text right here, you've been created for more than that. See, to truly be a human being is to be like Jesus, the son of man. He calls himself the son of man, the human one from the book of Daniel. And when we see the son of man or the human one, we find what it looks like to truly be a human. And I want to give you a new term. It's not that this way of self-denial is not biblical, it is, but there's just a, I think maybe for now, for today, a better way of thinking about it. The way of Jesus is the way of self-denial, or the way of Jesus is the way of self-giving love. Jesus is basically telling us here, you have two choices in, in, in how you live your life. See, because how you live your life matters to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you can live a life of self-giving love, or you can live a life of self-centered focus. Which do you choose? Like today, which do you choose? Now it's easy to, in moments like this to be like, duh, self-giving love for a thousand, please. I'll take that. That sounds nice. But see, it lives in a very difficult way, this self-giving love. Self-giving love means that I'm going to try my best to... to to be transformed by Jesus in such a way that I don't judge people based on their bumper stickers anymore. Self-giving love means that when I am wronged or someone rejects me, I'm going to still offer them love. (laughs) Holy moly. That's real business right there. Self-giving love 
means I'm not going to give up on that friend or family member who's given up on me. Self, living a life of self-giving love means I refuse to agree with the rest of my culture that you can, there's, there's sides that you're on and tribes and we're, we're different and we're separated and, 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 and we're going to let ourselves get sucked into this vortex of division. Self-giving love says that's no way for a human being to live. Living in the way of self-giving love literally means I'm going to give myself away so that I can love you better. That's the self-denial that Jesus was talking about. Self-giving love is most embodied perfectly and beautifully on the cross. That's self-giving love. That's self-denial. God on the electric chair. God being executed by the empire, taking all that it can give him so that he can be with the ones he loves. That's self-giving love, and that's the way that you're invited into, friends. That's the way that I'm invited into, and it's my pleasure and joy and also hardship to lean into that more and more every day if I can do it. And sometimes, I'll go on a 10-month derailment. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I can point to times in my life where I feel like I was completely deceived and gave myself to all the, all the garbage that I just talked about. And it takes somebody to, to be like, what's going on in your life? It takes a pastor. It takes a trusted friend. It takes a spiritual director. Say, tell me, tell me how you're processing things. And all of a sudden, I'm awoken out of my stupor, and I remember the self-denial way of Jesus, the self-giving love of Jesus, that it's not about me being right, it's not about me agreeing with our culture, it's not about me getting famous, it's about me living in this way, this flow of self-giving love that brings light and life to all things. You get to choose self-centered focus, self-giving love. And those choices are presented to us on a multiple, time, multiple times on a daily basis. How are you going to live? All right, let's move on. Jesus then says this thing about judgment. It's interesting. He says in verse 31, I believe, yep, this now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Now when we hear that word judgment, it does different things to different Christians, right? Some of us in the church, this was me for a long time, I, I, I've, I avoided the word judgment like the plague. Didn't like it. Didn't like the idea of it, didn't want to preach about it, didn't want to just kind of try to, do, try to avoid it. Others of us in the Christian tradition love it. I kind of grew up in that world where you actually, like some of us actually thrive on this idea of God judging dirty, rotten sinners. And when I say judging there, what I translate at that as is God smiting these dirty, rotten sinners, those dirty, rotten sinners getting what they deserve. And it's always everybody else, right? Judgment. It's a loaded concept, a loaded term. And it can be very scary. I want to share with you my view on judgment as I've studied the scriptures 
what I see is these two common themes about judgment. One way is really beautiful, the other is pretty scary, all right? First, the beautiful. Let's start with the good. When Jesus says things like this, now is the time for judgment on this world. We have scenes, we have visions of this angry Mark Driscoll type judgment of God, God craving and loving the fact, the, the, the idea of, of smiting sinners and in, in brutally and violently judging people and slaying them, right? But what we find in the New Testament, because I've, I've, I've heard sermons like that. I've heard sermons where, where people, not just Mark Driscoll, but many others as, as well, focusing on Revelation 19 where we have this vision of this warrior who comes from heaven and he's got a robe on that's dipped in blood and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth and he slays his enemies. That's biblical. But it seems if you, if you actually dig in and look at these larger themes, there's more to it. When, we, when Jesus talks and says things like, now is the time for judgment of this world, what, he, what, he, what I believe and what many scholars believe is Jesus is saying, now is the time for me to set the world to rights. That's different. Now is the time for judgment of, the world, of this world. Now is the time for me to drive the prince of this world out. He's talking about this idea of the Satan. Evil personified. And he's saying, now is the time in the cross where I am going to judge the world. And that means I'm going to set things to rights. Now I have come to, the Apostle Paul, Pauline theology in Romans 8 says that Jesus condemns sin in his flesh. It's like Romans 8, 3 or something like that. Jesus condemns sin in his flesh. It means that Jesus in his dying body took all of the violence, all of the hatred, all of the bitterness, all of the judgment, all of the evil, all of the pain, all of the sin the world could throw at him. He took it all in and he condemned it in his dying body. Are you with me? And when something is condemned, friends, that means it's no longer, like Jesus condemned the power of sin in his body, Paul said. Now is the time for me to, for judgment of the world. This is what Jesus is talking about. In Revelation 19, when we get this vision of, of Jesus coming with a sword coming out of his mouth and his robe dipped in blood and he's slaying his enemies, we love to think in this, you know, MMA-fueled, violent, loving world that, yes, Jesus, finally! What actually is going on there is that Jesus' enemies are not human beings. We know this because Jesus died for human beings. That should be obvious. Self-giving love of Jesus died for all the world. We know this. What is the enemy of Jesus that Jesus is slaying? By the way, that sword coming out of his mouth, it's metaphorical, like everything else in Revelation. When it says that Jesus slays his enemies with the word coming out of it, with the sword coming out of his mouth, it means that, that, that it's a metaphor for his word. And see, when Jesus slays his enemies, his enemies are things like what I've been talking about, violence, oppression, injustice, evil. The stuff that keeps you up at night keeps God up at night. And he's got his mind fixed and, his, and, his, and he's determined to put an end to it for once and for all. When judgment comes to this world, God will set all things to right. When you see judgment, think of that. And by the way, the blood that his robe is dipped in, in Revelation 19, spoiler alert, it's his own. That's the only one whose blood is shed is the Lamb of God who was sacrificed. 
judgment means that God is committed to setting the world to right. That, that idea of new creation and no more weeping and gnashing of teeth, no more looking at headlines of 35,000, 40,000 people being, being killed by an earthquake or, or children forced into, into being war machines and, and drugged and get, girls being given to child sex slavery. All of that stuff is the stuff that Jesus is going to judge and execute in the end when he sets all things to right. Can I get an amen? Then, here's the scary part. Sorry, that was the good part. I'm convinced, through just reading the scriptures and reading and consulting with theologians, I'm convinced also that judgment is for every single one of us. See, we think we think most of us here, I'll bet most of us are, vast majority even, are Christians. We would say we've, we believe in Jesus, we've prayed the prayer, we've done the things. So we feel good about ourselves in judgment. We get to kind of, like, we get to go around, right? I don't think so. I think every single one of us who's ever lived will pass through the judgment of God. And that judgment could be seen, in the scriptures it's talked about as the refiner's fire. The refiner's fire. And the way I take that is that God, for every single one of us at the end, cannot l- let anything live in us that is not of perfect divine agape love. And that refiner's fire, that judgment of God, is the fiery love of God that will not compromise, that will burn away anything in and of us that isn't made of divine love. I believe that each and every one of us will pass through that judgment in order to stand before God in the end. And that can start right now if you let it. That's why some of this relational business that I was talking about, the bitterness, the judgment, the self-giving love, that's painful, isn't it? I could think of relationships in this room and people who are part of this church but not in this room where it would bring me to tears to talk about the pain and the reality of what it means to live a life of self-giving love. And I think that's that divine love of God searing out all that's in us that it is not of love. And you can choose to agree with it and live like it as much as possible every single day or you can choose to remove yourself from that conversation and say, I'm not choosing that right now. It's too painful. But I think that divine, that judgment, that that searing pain of the love of God searing out everything that is not of love in us starts now and it will never stop until we're standing before Jesus. And for some of us, it's going to be a lot more painful than others at the end. Take a lot longer maybe. So judgment is this beautiful thing of God setting the world to right, but it's also this thing that every single one of us, I believe, this is, you can disagree with me on this. I believe the scriptures are consistent in saying it's for all of us because God cannot let anything that is not made of divine love live in us in the end. Okay? That's what I, that's, this is what I believe. Now we come to this interesting verse that I'm sure if you're really listening, it's like, what? Interesting. What does Jesus mean? Just the next verse. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Yes, I'm going to talk about this this morning. When I am lifted up from the earth and the cross, 
I will draw all people to myself. Now, this is just one of many verses that have this word all. The Greek word is pas. All. Now, does it mean it? Now, we, we usually skirt around verses like this because we've been so, it's been so ingrained in us that a, a vast majority of the world, the world that doesn't believe in Jesus, is going to burn in hell for eternity, in agony. Like they literally never ending torture and agony. But we read this and Jesus says, and when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And We've said this around here many times, so I'm not going to repeat the joke. That in Greek, the word all means all. It's just, it just does. I'm going to show you this word pas, this word all, in a number of spots in Scripture so you can see what it, what it actually means in context. So let's just go through them, Beulah. The first is in John 1, I believe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was God in the beginning. Through Him, pas, all things were made. All now, some of us, most of us don't read that verse and be like, well, <laughs> probably doesn't mean everything. Like, may, may, most things, no, it means all. Through him, all things were made, nothing. That, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Same exact word, pas. Same exact word that's in John 12, 32. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Keep going, Beulah. There was a man sent from, John, from God whose name was John, blah, blah, okay, so that through him all might believe. Again, pass. You can keep going. We're just, I'm, I'm going to make you a little bit, this is going to get redundant. He himself is not the light. He came only as the witness to the light, the true light that gives life to everyone. It's the same exact word, pass. Everyone or all. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but that his own did not receive him. We know this. Let's just skip forward. That, this word pass, this word all, is every single time you see all or every or everyone, it's that same exact Greek word pass, all right? Let's go to uh, Philippians. Is it Philippians next? After the John stuff, Beulah? Thank you for bouncing around with me. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and that I will continue with all of you for your progress in joining the faith. All, that all is pas. It's the same exact word. It means all. Again, let's go to Philippians 2. Now, this is an interesting one. Therefore, God, this is a beautiful section. It's the kenosis of Jesus, the self-giving love of Jesus. You should read it, Philippians 2, through 2, 1 through 10. Therefore, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every pas, every name. That at the name, name of Jesus, every pas, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Pas, all. Again, so let's read in Ephesians 1. This is just, I'm going to turn to Ephesians 1 so you can follow along with me, Beulah. We're just doing a little word study here. Bible people love word studies. Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from our God and Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every, pass, same word, spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption through sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Are you hearing these words? They're so good and beautiful. With all 
pas, all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to pas, all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Over and over again, I could do this for hours, friends. But we have these texts that, sh- that say, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Or that, that at the name of Jesus, every single knee shall bow and every tongue confess Jesus the Lord. It has it in Revelation as well. Or Paul saying this is the purpose of, of God enacted through Christ Jesus. That in Christ Jesus, all things would be united, whether things on earth or, on earth or under the earth even. That all things would be united with Jesus. Now, I just want to tell you, I believe those verses. I believe those verses. I believe that Jesus and Paul and the writers of Revelation and the writers of the New Testament, God has given them a glimpse, and Jesus knows how everything will end up. In Greek, that word is telos, the end. And I believe over and over again in scriptures, we find God's, the scriptures saying, every knee will bow, just so you know. Every tongue will confess. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And we, the, the way some people get around that is that they say all, all people groups. That's not what Jesus said. That's literally not what Jesus said. But there's tension here. Let's keep reading. All you got to do, this is a perfect text to go over this and to try to wrestle with this because all you got to do is keep reading and you're going to find there's tension to what I just said. Then Jesus cried out in verse 44, John 12, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but the one who sent me, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I've come into this world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person for I did not come into the world to judge it, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded, commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his commands lead to eternal life. So whatever I say is just, and the Father has told me to say. All you got to do is keep reading, and there, your intention. Jesus says in John 12, 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That's amazing. And then you just keep reading in John 12, and you find Jesus saying things like, those who do not believe in, what, in, in, in the word that I've said will stand condemned. What do you do? The first is we need to be honest. I want to say that too few people, yeah, too few people in the church are comfortable with nuance and tension. But when we're talking about who's in and who's out at the end, that's the most serious conversation you can have. We have to be honest and say the Bible isn't clear. Now, that would get most pastors fired to say that. And I'm not go- I haven't gone on my own. I've submitted myself to the elders, and they even know what I was going to say today. But the Bible is that tension with itself because I could give you, there's over 30 verses where it says it's, it, the scriptures clearly say and speak to all will be saved in the end. 
All will pass through the judgment of God, that fiery love, and burn away all that is not of divine love. And all, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's biblical. Like it or not, it's biblical. And I hope you like it. Like, I hope we're the kind of church that celebrates life. (laughs) There are too many Christians who are obsessed with people burning forever in eternity. That's an unhealthy obsession. But, so I've, let me just tell you my view. I've told you my view. I've, I've changed over time. I grew up in a Baptist and Lutheran home, and that means that I was one of the many who believed that a vast majority of people who have ever lived will spend eternity in hell, in a literal place that was, that has weeping and gnashing of teeth and smells of sulfur and fire and all that stuff. And I want to tell you, most biblical scholars worth their salt will tell you we've gotten that picture of hell more from Dante's Inferno than we have from the scriptures itself. That's just completely true. But that was my, what I believed and was passed on to me. And then I started to have issues with it, and then I started to read the scriptures, and so I started to think, okay, I don't think that eternal conscious torment is the official term for it, is a real thing. I think that's mostly based on Dante's Inferno, and that's maybe, I believe, a more a C.S. Lewis great divorce kind of situation where you're separated from God. If you choose, God's going to basically give you your, your way. If you choose to go your own way, God's going to say, fine, I'm not going to force myself on you, and you live in eternal separation from God. That's what I believed at one point. Then I just started saying, and if you've been around here, you've heard me say this, like, I know the scripture are very clear, and I, I fully believe this, that if you believe in Jesus, if you put your faith in Christ and you live a life of, of, that demonstrates that faith, you're in. Like, scriptures are very clear about that. I'm still there. But then I would say, I don't, the rest is, is above my pay grade, and I still believe that. That's what I can put my stand on firmly. But I have been... I spent the last several years taking these verses seriously that say all. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. God's purpose enacted in Christ Jesus was to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. So that, that Paul said, said it like this, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord, not life, nor death. He said, death cannot separate you from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not life, nor death, nor hardship, nor famine, nor, nor, nor angels or demons, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in the created world can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I believe that Paul meant that. So I believe, I've come to this point now where I'm just coming out to you as a church I, be, I choose to believe in ultimate reconciliation. That in the end, all will be drawn to Jesus. Whether in this life or the next, I have no idea that's above my pay grade. But I think the scriptures are clear. But here's the deal, friends. I think the scriptures are clear that that, that is a reality. Well, I think it's also clear that the scriptures speak to that not being a reality. It's both there. That, I think, is undeniable. Would you guys, Randy, would you agree with that? Ian, where are you? Would you agree with that? Like, they're, they're, both of those themes are there, right? Yep. Then it's up to us now to figure out what's the major themes in the Bible and in the scriptures. What did Jesus come to do and where do, what do I believe about the end, the telos, the, what's going to happen at the end? 
which of these texts, which of these verses are the ones that we see agreeing more with the heart of God. And I want to tell you, you can believe either one and be a really good Christian. I hope that all of us hope that all will be saved. I hope so. Because that's just a good hope to have. It's a basic, I think it's a sinful disposition to say, I am excited that, that many people will rot in hell for all eternity. That's a terrible thing to believe. Or that's a terrible thing to hope for, I want to say. But the scriptures speak to maybe that's a reality. And we have to sit with that. I have to sit with that. And just in case you think this is some postmodern mumbo-jumbo, let me just read this list for you. See, Augustine, St. Augustine, he's like mainly the father of Christian orthodoxy and theology. He, wasn't, uh, he didn't believe in ultimate reconciliation. He, didn't, he wasn't a, a universalist. But Augustine wrote, and I want to read this so I can actually say it clearly. Augustine wrote, he, he called... Um, there were many people within the early church who believed in ultimate reconciliation, many. And Augustine wrote, we, there, there are so many of our compassionate ones, he called them, our compassionate ones. And he was referring to the ones in the church who believed in ultimate reconciliation. And the ones, the church fathers and mothers who believed in ultimate reconciliation, if you're, if you're into church history, you're going to recognize some of these names. Clement believed in ultimate reconciliation. Origen, for sure, believed in ultimate reconciliation. St. Macrina, or Macrina the Younger, seems like she definitely believed in ultimate reconciliation. St. Gregory of Nyssa, who is one of the Cappadocian fathers, very influential in our faith, and he was the final editor of the Nicene Creed. Most people think he believed in ultimate reconciliation. Some believe his brother Basil the Great was also believed in ultimate reconciliation, but I didn't include his name on this list because it's not for sure. It's kind of he said some things that seemed intention, but others like St. Jerome, St. Cassian, St. Isaac of Nineveh, St. Maximus the Confessor, who was amazing, had amazing things to say, and many more believed in ultimate reconciliation. This is not something that's aberrant, it's not something that's unbiblical, and it's not something that is, is new in church history. The, uh, the way they referred to this in the early church was this crazy Greek word called apokotestation apocatastasis. That's almost as hard as undedicumpo to say. <laughs> apocatastasis. Am I getting that right, Zach? Let's say that all together. Apocatastasis. Apocatastasis. It comes from Acts 3.21. It's from the scriptures. You can put that up there, Beulah. I think I have that. Yes. This is Peter talking to the people after he healed this per the, the lame beggar. He healed him and he's given this case for, for God's heart for humanity. And he said, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Again, until the time comes for God to restore everything. And that restore there is apocatastasis. It's this, again, this belief that these early church fathers and mothers had, many of them, that apocast, they would say, I, I, I believe in apocatastasis. I believe that all will be reconciled at the end. Because it says it right there in the scriptures. Eagle. Yes, this is great. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that I like to use and that other theologians like to, and I'm not a theologian. Don't let me say, come across as that. It's a word that some theologians use to, to kind of take the the spikes off the word universalism, because when you hear the word universalism, instantly your hackles go up and instantly you're skeptical. So we think, so I, I think, I believe in that ultimate reconciliation means that all will be saved in the end. That, 
See, for me, here's, here's, the, here's the crux of it, friends. It's way late, and we could talk for a lot longer. And we're going to have, in two weeks, two weeks from today, we're going to have a Q&A. Bring all your questions. Email me this week if you want. Talk to me afterwards. I will, I can't stay too late because I got meat smoking on the grill at home, but <laughs> let's talk. But here's for me. I've come to a place where the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus has expanded. See, this is not a universalism that says this is easy. Because I can't look at the scriptures where Jesus is troubled in John 12 and say, my soul is distressed. See, because the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus was real. And I think it accomplished exactly what God wanted to accomplish, which is reconciling all things to Jesus. Ultimate reconciliation. And again, friends, you can believe that that's not the truth, and we can be friends. And not only friends, but we can be family. We can be part of the same church, because in a couple of chapters, we're going to see where Jesus says, he said, this is the most important thing to the church. And it's not good doctrine. It's not good theology. It's not, it's not, Knowing your Bible the best, it's this word that is scandalous and almost impossible. It's called unity. Not uniformity, unity. And I'm not going to spoil the sermons that will come when we get into the, to it, but I just say that to say, you don't have to believe what I believe to be part of this church. Let's be learners together. Let's honor one another. Let's respect one another. Let's love one another and be united as a church Walking towards truth together because, friends, I'm going to break it to you. I haven't come to the end of, I haven't found ultimate truth. I found ultimate truth. His name is Jesus. But all that goes into what it means that truth is, that's the joy of doing this together and being part of the church. So I know it's late. If you've got to leave, we're gonna, I'm going to pray and you can leave if you want. But we're going to end in communion because communion is a symbol of unity, of us finding our meaning, our worth, and our value in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, finding all things in Jesus. So let's just pray together. And servers, why don't you come up? Holy Spirit, would you, would you do the work that I cannot, which is attend to souls? Would you help us wrestle with your scriptures and with this, even with this stuff of ultimate reconciliation or some might be separated from Christ eternal, from you eternally, would you help us approach this stuff with humility, please? I am not the final authority in my, what I believe might be wrong, but Jesus, you are. And so we come to this table now saying that. Just through walking up the, up the middle of this aisle and approaching and taking this bread in this cup, we're just proclaiming, Jesus, you are Lord and I am not. You are king and I am not. We're submitting ourselves to you and your ways, Jesus, and we're going to try our best to follow you. Try our best to have belief that is rooted in the scriptures. Nowhere else. Even when it gets really complex and difficult and unclear, we trust you, Holy Spirit. More than we trust any pastor we've ever had, more than we trust me, more than we trust the elders here, more than we trust any theologian or biblical scholar, we trust you, Holy Spirit. Come and guide us and lead us into truth. But Jesus, right now we come before you to your table saying, you are Lord and I am not.
Would you unite us? And would you redeem us? And would you redeem every single thing and person that, is, that exists? 